Hello, everybody, and welcome into this episode number 20 of the Bible Reading Podcast. Today's big Bible question, what is the startling and offensive key to greatness according to Jesus? I want to point you to our website, BibleReadingPodcast.com. Every episode we do, and it's a daily show, is going to be there, Bible Reading Podcast, with all the show notes, all the quotes, everything you need. If you have a question you would like us to cover in a future show, just go to the show uh, webpage, BibleReadingPodcast.com, and leave a comment on any post. I'll see it, and I will add your question to the file I would also ask you, uh, almost beg you on my knees to share the podcast with people, to leave a review. All of these kind of things help us to get the word out. And our goal, the goal of this show is not to make money, not to become uh, rich and famous or whatever, but it's to encourage daily time in the word for the people of God. Not that we would read the Bible in a year. That's a good goal. I hope you do that. But Our goal is to encourage daily Bible reading. Whether you pick this up in January or October, we want to join together with lots of people daily reading the Bible. And today, we are reading Genesis 21, Nehemiah 10, Matthew 20, and Acts chapter 20. Now, I am not as young as I used to be, but way before my time, there was a TV show called I Love Lucy. Now, I did occasionally watch that show in my childhood on syndication. If you aren't familiar with the show, it followed the crazy antics of a redheaded woman named Lucy Ricardo. Now, Lucy was an extremely impulsive and maybe creative is a nice way to put it, a creative woman, and she was always getting into trouble in one way or the other and then having to be rescued from it. Uh, Lucy's husband, Ricky, was the far more sensible one in the marriage. He would often ask her for an explanation of her disasters, saying things like, Lucy, explain, or Lucy, splain. Now, interestingly enough, there's a meme out there. Uh, there's a catchphrase attributed to Ricky where he says, Lucy, you have some splaining to do. That was never said on the TV show. I know, mind blown, right? You know what else? Beam me up, Scotty was never said on Star Trek. Just the facts, ma'am, was never said on Dragnet. And maybe the one that blows me away the most, I pity the fool, was never said by Mr. T on the A-Team. But I I digress. So sometimes as our family reads through the book of Genesis, I feel like our kids come to me with sort of the equivalent of what Ricky Ricardo came to his wife. They're like, Dad, you've got some explaining to do about this book. And reading through Genesis, I get it. I mean, gosh, there's so many questions. Why did Lot try to give his daughters to a band of bloodthirsty rapers? Why did Abram try to pass off his wife as his sister so much so that another man married her? Why did Lot's daughters... Well, I'm not going to finish that sentence, but you get the point. The fact of the matter is that Genesis is not the story of God's best saints, nor the story of upright and mighty heroes, but rather it's the story of weak-willed, foolish people who are a mess, who do not deserve sainthood, who are not moral exemplars. In fact, I was thinking about Genesis in the shower last week, and especially thinking about Uh, Well, just to be honest with you, I was thinking about what a jerk Lot was and how strange it was that God chose to save him. 
In the midst of those thoughts, as I was uh, just pondering in the shower, almost offended by it, another voice broke into my mind. And it said this, it said, Lot didn't deserve to be saved. And I could tell it wasn't really my voice, and I considered the words. My first thought was, oh, yeah, that's right, he sure didn't. It's ridiculous that he was saved. Lot didn't deserve. And about that time, my thought stopped, and I said, oh, yeah, I get it. That's really the whole point of Lot and the other sinners in the Bible. They don't deserve to be saved. They didn't deserve it. They were a mess. And yet God showed mercy and grace on them. And hopefully you're getting the point by now without me even having to say it. But to put a finer point on it, we, you and I, we don't deserve to be saved. That's what grace is. Grace is unearned, unmerited, undeserved, unwarranted favor. We our lot. Reminds me of Romans chapter 5 verse 6. While we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, says Paul, though for you know a really good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So man, that's good stuff. I don't necessarily like the fact that I'm more akin to a sinner like Lot than I am to some idealized version of a saint, but that's the facts of the matter, and I'm grateful for the grace of God. Today's focus passage is found in the teachings of Jesus from Matthew chapter 20. It's one of the shorter and honestly more offensive teachings of Jesus. It's also one of his most profound teachings, and it is a truth we must grasp. And it occurs there uh, sort of towards the end of Matthew. So let's get started. This is Matthew chapter 1. I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 20, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the workers on one denarius, he sent them into his vineyard for the day. When he went about out about nine in the morning, he saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He said to them, you also go into my vineyard and I'll give you whatever is right. So off they went. About noon and about three, he went out again and did the same thing. Then about five, he went out and even still found others standing around and said to them, why have you been standing around here all day doing nothing? Well, because no one hired us, they said to him. You also go into my vineyard, he told them. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard told his foreman, Call the workers and give them their pay, starting with the last and ending with the first. When those who were hired at about five came, they each received one denarius. So when the first ones came, they assumed they would get more. But they also received a denarius each. When they received it, they began to complain to the landowner. These last men put in one hour of work, and you made them equal to us who bore the burden of the day's work in the burning heat. And he replied to one of them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Didn't you agree with me on a denarius? Take what cheers and go. I want to give this last man the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to be 
to do what I want with what is mine? Are you jealous because I'm generous? So, says Jesus, the last will be first and the first last. While going up to Jerusalem, Jesus took the twelve disciples aside privately and said to them on the way, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. They will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, flogged, and crucified, and on the third day he will be raised. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons approached him with her son. She knelt down to ask him for something. What do you want? he asked her. Promise, she said to him, that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right and the other on your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? We're able, they said to him. And he told them, You will indeed drink the cup, but to sit at my right and left is not mine to give. Instead, it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. When the ten disciples heard this, they became indignant with the two brothers. But Jesus called them over and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those in high position as act as tyrants over them. It must not be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And as they were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. There were two blind men sitting by the road. When they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd demanded that they keep quiet, but they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Jesus stopped, called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? Lord, they said to him, Open our eyes. Moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes, and immediately they could see, and they followed him. The fact of the matter is that most of us in America, in the United Kingdom, in most of the Western countries, we consider servants and slaves to be a position that is so low that it is actually offensive. Yes, there is slavery in the Bible. The kind of slavery that's in the Bible is more akin to what we might call or think of as indentured servitude than what most Western people think about when they hear the word slavery. The kind of slavery practiced by America and other Western countries up until the 20th century, it was an abomination, a horror. It was an indefensible moral outrage. And the fact that there were uh, Christians, or at least purported Christians, and preachers living in America in the 1800s, preaching sermons, trying to defend slavery from the Bible, it makes my blood boil. It's absurd. It's heretical. It's awful that they tried to justify their barbaric racism with the word of God. And you can't justify racism with the word of God. In fact, I wrote a book that really goes into a lot more detail on this. It's called The Bible and Racism. You can find it on Amazon. The bottom line is the kind of slavery practice in the Bible is different in many, many ways than the kind of slavery that was practiced by the Americans and the British, etc. Um, 
It does need to be said that it was different, but the kind of slavery in the Bible obviously wasn't good. It also needs to be said that the people of God in Israel were enslaved by the Egyptians for 400 years. And there are many other instances of slavery in the Bible, and quite clearly nobody particularly enjoyed being a slave or aspired to continue being in slavery. And yet, here we have Jesus saying this horribly offensive in some ways, but more than that, beautifully profound statement. If anybody wants to be great in my kingdom, they must be a servant and a slave to all. And here's the sobering truth. The thing we consider to be one of the lowest practices of humanity, which is serving somebody, is, in the eyes of Jesus, actually one of the highest practices of humanity. Servant greatness is one of the key themes in the Bible. You see it over and over again. I've said it before, maybe. When I see a gifted person that is serving, I always think to myself, aha, that person understands the key to greatness. When I see a gifted person operating in his or her gifts and intentionally avoiding serving or even seeking to be served themselves, I wonder if they've really understood the call of Jesus rightly. The greatest pastors, the greatest leaders, the greatest apostles among us must always serve. I think of an example of that in a church I used to serve in in the past. There was uh, a lady uh, named Paula who was incredibly gifted at teaching and at leading, but Paula was always intentional about serving more than she was intentional about doing all those other things. And I always thought, ah, she gets it. She gets what Jesus said about the key to greatness. Now, maybe you've heard Karl Marx, his charge against religion. Of course, he said that religion is the opiate of the masses. Well, first, I don't grant that Christianity is a religion. Religion's all about working to please God and earn salvation, Christianity is, on the other hand, is about the work that has been done on our behalf by God in order to please God. But, you know, just to be nice, I'll humor Marx just this once, and I'll ask back the question, if religion is indeed the opiate of the masses, as he says it is, in other words, if humans flock to a religion for the same reasons they take opiates and morphine, in other words, to dull their pain and feel better— My question to you, Mr. Marx, I know he's dead. Why follow the Jesus way? Why go lower? Why sacrifice? Why submit? Why be humble? Why seek to serve others more than yourself? Why give radically? Understand, Jesus says the way to greatness is to serve. That's not an opiate. That's not feel-good medicine. That's like smelling salts. Religion puts you to sleep like opium, but the teachings of Jesus stir you to life with their power and sometimes with their uh, offensiveness. I can see how somebody might say, 
what Mark said about, uh, you know, the sunshine pumping kind of prosperity preachers that you see on TV from time to time. They promise you wealth. They promise you health. They promise you the blessings of God and that all God wants for you is your best life now. They ask you for you to send them your money. But that, that kind of thing, that's not biblical Christianity. That's something else entirely. It's a twisted shell. Of Christianity. The Jesus way is the way of serving. Tribulation is promised in this life, but the rewards of following Jesus and living life as a servant are eternal greatness, life everlasting, and blessing literally beyond our ability to comprehend. So I don't think the Jesus way, I don't think the New Testament way is any sort of opium. It's more like a cup of cold water to the face, but the hope that is in it is astounding. Now, considering, consider this encouraging word from uh, Charles Spurgeon on serving. I have spoken of meekness towards God, but those who are truly meek are also gentle towards their fellow men. I wish that all Christians had this character and that they might not be rough, overbearing, proud, and hectoring or attacking as some are. There are some who seem to think that nobody would esteem them if they did not kick everybody as they went along. They seem to fancy that all other people, as well as themselves, are made of iron, and that their power will not be known unless they dash themselves against all who come near them. But it should not be so among the children of God. Oh, that we might learn that holy courtesy, which is one of the true marks of a Christian. Oh, that we might have a tender regard for other people's feelings, because we have a fellow feeling with them. And that we might pass through the world, not anxious to be noticed, but rather to be unnoticed. Not desirous to be great in the world's eyes, but willing to be little eager rather to wash the feet of the saints than to have them crown our heads, desirous not so much to be ministered to as to minister to others. For true greatness, says Spurgeon, lies in the sacrifice of self for the good of others. Remember how our Lord said to his disciples, whoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. This is always the rule in the church of Christ. God makes it to be so, though it seems not according to the usual bent of human nature. The Lord takes great delight in those who are of such a meek and quiet and humble and lowly disposition. Fantastic and amen. So I'll close with this. Four keys to being a great servant. Number one, be wary of judging other people. I get that from Romans 14.3. The man who eats everything must not look down on him who does not, and the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. So you want to be a good servant? Don't judge. Number two, serve people, put them above yourself, but you and I were not supposed to be people pleasers. There's a difference between serving and seeking to be a people pleaser. Paul puts it like this in Galatians 1.10. He says, am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. We can't serve Christ if our goal is to please people. Third key to being a servant. Don't argue, be gentle. 
2 Timothy 2.23 says, Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels and the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. Is somebody wrong and you need to correct them? You can't quarrel with them. You must be kind, not resentful, and you need to gently instruct them. That is the command of the Lord. Final key to being a servant. I mean, the Bible is filled with him, but I'm only going to do four here because we try to keep this kind of quick. Final key, watch out for titles. Matthew 23, 8, and I'm in particular talking about ministry titles. Matthew 23, 8, you are not to be called rabbi, says Jesus, for you have only one master and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called teacher, for you have one teacher, the Christ. The greatest among you will be your servant, for whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So you know what? Titles in the body of Christ, they're kind of off the table. Jesus is the king. The rest of us, we're just people, right? We're just servants. We're just slaves. And you know what? Servant is a pretty high title in the kingdom of God. Finally, we would do well to remember the example of Jesus that Paul talks about Philippians 2, where he says, this is Philippians 2 verse 5, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature, God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped hold of, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. If that's how our King Jesus behaved, how much more should we behave as mere servants? Genesis chapter 21, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. The Lord came to Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age. At the appointed time, God had told him, Abraham named his son who was born to him, the one Sarah bore to him, Isaac. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has made me laugh, and everyone who hears will laugh with me. She also said, Who would have told Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne a son for him in his old age? The child grew and was weaned. And Abraham held a great feast on the day Isaac was weaned, but Sarah saw the son mocking, the one Hagar the Egyptian had borne to Abraham. So she said to Abraham, Drive out this slave with her son, for the son of this slave will not be a co-heir with my son Isaac. This was very distressing to Abraham because of his son. But God said to Abraham, Do not be distressed about the boy and about your slave. Whatever Sarah says to you, listen to her, because your offspring will be traced through Isaac, and I will also make a nation of the slave's son, because he is your offspring. Early in the morning, Abraham got up, took bread and a water skin, put them on Hagar's shoulders, and sent her and the boy away. She left and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water and the skin was gone, 
She left the boy under one of the bushes and went and sat at a distance about a bow shot away, for she said, I cannot watch my boy die. While she sat at a distance, she wept loudly, and God heard the boy crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What's wrong, Hagar? Don't be afraid, for God has heard the boy crying from the place where he is. Get up, help the boy up, and grasp his hand, for I will make him a great nation." Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well, so she went and filled the water skin and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy, and he grew. He settled in the wilderness and became an archer. He settled in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother got a wife for him from the land of Egypt. At that time, Abimelech, accompanied by Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in everything you do. Swear to me by God here and now that you will not break an agreement with me or with my children and descendants. As I have been loyal to you, so you will be loyal to me and to the country where you are a resident alien. And Abraham said, I swear it. But Abraham complained to Abimelech because of the well that Abimelech's servants had seized. Abimelech replied, I don't know who did this thing. You didn't report anything to me, so I hadn't heard about it until today. Abraham took flocks and herds and gave them to Abimelech, and the two of them made a covenant. Abraham separated seven ewe lambs from the flock, and Abimelech said to Abraham, Why have you separated these seven ewe lambs? He replied, You are to accept the seven ewe lambs from me so that this act will serve as my witness that I dug this well. Therefore, that place was called Beersheba, because it was there that the two of them swore an oath. After they had made a covenant at Beersheba, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, left and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and there he called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham lived as an alien in the land of the Philistines for many days. And I will just point out once again, I believe what Sarah did to Hagar and Ishmael was wrong. And I rejoice that God preserved them. But do notice, all throughout Genesis, all throughout the Old Testament, the, quote, heroes are going to constantly sin and do things that aren't right. Sometimes the Bible points our attention to that. Sometimes it doesn't. Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 1. Those whose seals were on the document were the governor, Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, and Zedekiah, Sarahiah, Azariah, Jeremiah, Pasher, Amariah, Malkajai, Hattush, Shebaniah, Maluk, Harim, Merimoth, Obadiah, Daniel, Ginnathon, Baruch, Meshulam, Abijah, Mijaman, Maatziah, Bilgai, Shemaiah. These were the priests. The Levites were Jeshua, son of Azaniah, Benui of the sons of Hinadad, Cadmiel and their brothers, Shebaniah, Hodiah, Kelida, Paliah, Hanan, Micah, Rehob, Hashabiah, Hashabiah, I should say, Zakur, Sherebiah, Shebaniah, Hodiah, Bani, Beninu, and the heads of the people were Parash, Pehath Moab, Elam, Zatu, Bani, Bunny, 
Asgad, Bebai, Adonijah, Bigvi, Aden, Atur, Hezekiah, Azur, Hodiah, Hashem, Bizai, Harith, Anathoth, Nebai, Magpiash, Meshulam, Hetzir, Meshazabil, Zadok, Jadua, Pelatiah, Hanan, Anaiah, Hoshea, Hananiah, Hashub, Halohesh, Pilha, Shobek, Rehum, Hashabana, Maasiah, Ahijah, Hanan, Anan, Maluk, Harim, and Bana. A lot of names. The rest of the people, the priests, Levites, gatekeepers, singers, and temple servants, along with their wives, sons, and daughters, everyone who is able to understand and who has separated themselves from the surrounding peoples to obey the law of God, join with their noble brothers and commit themselves with a sworn oath to follow the law of God given through God's servant Moses and to obey carefully all the commands, ordinances, and statues of the Lord our Lord. We will not give our daughters in marriage to the surrounding peoples and will not take their daughters as wives for our sons. When the surrounding peoples bring merchandise or any kind of grain to sell on the Sabbath day, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or a holy day. We will also leave the land uncultivated in the seventh year and will cancel every debt. We will impose the following commands on ourselves. To give an eighth of an ounce of silver yearly for the service of the house of our God. The bread displayed before the Lord, the daily grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbath and the new moon offerings, the appointed festivals, the holy things, the sin offerings to atone for Israel and for all the work of the house of God. We have cast lots among the priests, Levites, and peoples for the donation of wood by our ancestral families at the appointed times each year. They are to bring the wood to our God's house to burn on the altar of our God, as it is written in the law. We will bring the first few fruits of our land and of every fruit tree to the Lord's house year by year. We will also bring the firstborn of our sons and our livestock as prescribed by the law, and will bring the firstborn of our herds and flocks to the house of our God, to the priests who serve in our God's house. We will bring a loaf from our first batch of dough to the priests at the storerooms of the house of our God. We will also bring the first fruits of our grain offerings of every fruit tree and of the new wine and fresh oil. A tenth of our land's produce belongs to the Levites, for the Levites are to collect the one-tenth offering in all of our agricultural towns. A priest from Aaron's descendants is to accompany the Levites when they collect the tenth, and the Levites are to take a tenth of this offering to the storerooms of the treasury in the house of our God. For the Israelites and the Levites are to bring the contributions of grain, new wine, and fresh oil to the storerooms where the articles of the sanctuary are kept, and where the priests who minister are, along with the gatekeepers and singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. Acts chapter 20 verse 1. After the uproar was over, Paul sent for the disciples, encouraged them, and after saying farewell, departed to go to Macedonia. And when he had passed through those areas and offered them many words of encouragement, he came to Greece and stayed three months. The Jews plotted against him when he was about to sail for Syria, and so he decided to go back through Macedonia. He was accompanied by Sopater, son of Pyrrhus from 
Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derby, Timothy and Tychicus, and Trophimus from the province of Asia. These men went on ahead and waited for us in Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the festival of unleavened bread. In five days we reached them at Troas, where we spent seven days. On the first day of the week we assembled to break bread. Paul spoke to them, and since he was about to depart the next day, he kept on talking until midnight. There were many lamps in the room upstairs where we were assembled, and a young man named Eutychus was sitting on a window sill and sank into a deep sleep as Paul kept on talking. When he was overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was picked up dead. But Paul went down bent over him, embraced him, and said, Don't be alarmed, because he's alive. After going upstairs, breaking the bread and eating, Paul talked a long time until dawn. Then he left. They brought the boy home alive and were greatly comforted. He went on ahead to the ship and sailed for Azos, where we were going to take Paul on board, because those were his instructions, since he himself was going by land. When he met us at Azos, we took him on board and went on to Mytilene. Sailing from there, the next day we arrived off Chios. The following day we crossed over to Samos, and the day after we came to Miletus, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia, because he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and summoned the elders of the church. When they came to him, he said to them, You know, from the first day I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with humility and with tears, enduring the trials that came to me through the plots of the Jews. You know that I did not avoid proclaiming to you anything that was profitable or from teaching you publicly and from house to house. I testified to both Jews and Greeks about repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus. And now I am on my way to Jerusalem, compelled by the Spirit, not knowing what I will encounter there, except that in every town the Holy Spirit warns me that chains and afflictions are waiting for me. But I consider my life of no value to myself. My purpose is to finish my course in the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of God's grace. And now I know that none of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore I declare to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, because I did not avoid declaring to you the whole plan of God." Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Men will rise up from even among your own number and distort the truth to lure disciples into following them. Therefore, be on alert, remembering that night and day for three years, I never stopped warning each one of you with tears. And now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that I worked with my own hands to support myself and those who are with me. In every way, I've shown you that it is necessary to help the weak by laboring like this and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus because he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. 
After he said this, he knelt down and prayed with all of them. There were many tears shed by everyone. They embraced Paul and kissed him, grieving most of all over his statement that they would never see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. Now that is the word of the Lord, and my hope is today as every day, that it is an encouragement to you, that it is a challenge to you, and that it builds you and I both up in the most holy faith and points us to following Jesus the King. What a wonderful privilege it is to hear the Word of God. If you'll allow, I just want to read verse 32 again, because it just shows you the power of the word and of what we're doing, giving ourselves to daily Bible reading or daily Bible listening. I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all who are sanctified. May the word build you up. Godspeed. We'll see you tomorrow.